I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And after a brief summer break, we return today to discuss one of the most hotly contested uh, questions of the week, namely, do current laws and the Constitution give public figures adequate protection from online hackers? Uh, this question arose from the media uproar after a massive leak of celebrity photos, which put a new focus on several interesting legal questions about online privacy for the rich and famous in the 21st century. Recently, hackers posted unauthorized photos of celebrities in various states of undress on a website called 4chan that specializes in posting shocking images. The photos were appropriated from cell phones and mobile accounts, and they included images of actresses Jennifer Lawrence and the model Kate Upton. The images started appearing on other websites, including Reddit, and soon the international media was reporting the massive leak of sensitive photos. The Washington Post reported that hackers bragged about getting photos from Apple's iCloud service. The hackers, of course, will face severe legal penalties, but the victim's lawyers have limited options to remove the offending images from the Internet. The lawyers can go after the websites on copyright grounds, or they can pursue claims related to the victim's rights to privacy and publicity, but American law, unlike European law, generally grants internet service providers immunity from illegal content posted by others. And the practical problem for celebrities, as well as the not-so-rich and famous, is the viral nature of the internet and social media. Once a photo is passed around, it's hard to bring back. So here's the question for today. Do current laws need to be changed to make it easier for anyone to get these photos offline? Should websites be held more liable for posting content that violates a person's copyright privileges and their rights to privacy and publicity? Joining us to discuss these fascinating topics are two of the world experts in the field of digital privacy, both good friends of the National Constitution Center. Eric Posner is the Kirkland and Ellis Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. And Mark Rotenberg is Executive Director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center in Washington, D.C. Um, Eric, let me start with you, and perhaps you could just describe the legal basics of the current situation involving the online publication of these private intimate photos of public figures. Uh, why is this illegal, and what recourse do the attorneys for the celebrities really have against the websites that posted the pictures? Well, they don't really have uh, much recourse at all against the websites. Um, the background here is that there, there traditional, uh, there's a traditional law of privacy that um, is uh, common law, judge-made uh, law, that gives uh, people some protection. Uh, so if um, somebody sneaks into your house, takes an image, um, and, uh, and publishes it, uh, you may be able to go after that person. Um, in the internet, uh, in the world of the internet, things have changed, and this is partly because of some statutes that were enacted in the 1990s. These statutes effectively immunize uh, websites um, and other internet services from liability for violating people's uh, privacy. There are also certain limitations on um, being able to sue. Uh, these uh, services for copyright violations, which is a slightly different topic, uh, but related topic. So um, these statutes were enacted in part because of a worry that um, websites couldn't, as a practical matter, uh, protect people 
um, from the dissemination of images that the websites themselves were not responsible for obtaining in the first place. But uh, I think uh, you know the result of this is that effectively celebrities and and even more so non-celebrities really really have no recourse. That they can't sue a website and obtain damages if the website uh, publishes images to them that are harmful. Mark, do you have anything to add to Eric's uh, description of the law? Tell us more about Section 230, which is the part of the uh, Communications Decency Act that, as Eric said, immunizes uh, websites from liability even for allegedly stolen or illegally hacked uh, photographs. Um, and does Section uh, 230 uh, need to be changed? Well, that's the key provision, Jeff, and that's an issue I think that's uh, been debated almost since the time uh, the the, uh, the bill was passed. Um, I remember, in fact, the debate because prior to enactment of Section 230, there had been a couple of cases, uh, Cubby versus CompuServe and Stratton Oakmont, both of which raising the question what would be the liability for um, Internet-based services that were publishing information provided uh, by others. And there were various standards that were considered at the time. Even news organizations with First Amendment protections can in some instances be liable for defamation. And even uh, bookstores and newsstands and libraries in a very narrow set of circumstances can be liable for information that they might disseminate. Uh, but Congress decided in 1996 with 230 to give absolute immunity to uh, Internet-based service providers, and it's an extraordinary provision. It meant in some cases, for example, even when the Internet company such as AOL was paying uh, Matt Drudge to make available information that was uh, defamatory, AOL itself was not uh, liable for the publication of that information. Now, the Internet industry will certainly say that 230 is a wonderful protection because it does avoid the liability they might otherwise face. But I think over time, people have become increasingly uneasy about it. And this is true not only because of the recent publications of intimate photos of, of uh, celebrities, but also the recognition that in other areas, for example, copyright protection or child pornography, um, it's well understood that there is uh, circumstances where the Internet providers will have to take down information. So whether Congress is prepared to weigh back into the debate over 230, I think right now is an interesting question. Uh, again, from the Internet perspective, from the perspective of the companies, there's no uh, benefit to them to, to see a change. Um, but I think that type of immunity that they've enjoyed for 20 years is really being uh, tested right now uh, with the celebrity photo publication and others. Eric, uh, do you think 230 should be changed? And if so, how? Um, Emily Bazelon in Slate recently suggested there should be an exception for the victims of involuntary porn, and they should be able to demand the removal of that offensive material. Do you agree with this sectoral approach? Do you think 230 needs to be revised more broadly? And what about the arguments on the other side that 230 has done more to protect free speech than any other provision in the Internet age? I would go much farther than Emily Bazelon and you know just repeal it completely, uh, at least off the top of my head. There may be some exceptions that one would want to think about carefully, but uh, I don't I don't see any reason to believe that um, internet service providers or, or web-based services should be immune. 
uh, when they uh, disseminate information that otherwise uh, it is illegal to disseminate. Um, you know, I understand some of the arguments, like uh, one worry that, that's been discussed a lot or that used to be discussed, I'm, I'm not sure whether people still discuss it, is, you know, suppose I, I go onto um, a website which has some kind of comment section and I, and I just, you know, say something defamatory. Um, it seems a little bit hard to uh, punish the, the, the website if I do that. And the worry is that the website might overreact and just not let anybody post comments. But uh, I, I don't think that that's right. Um, I, I think that uh, these technology companies are developing sophisticated tools for uh, screening their content. Um, you can have uh, sort of compromise measures or halfway measures that for example, could require them to take down images and, and, and so they can avoid li liability if they take down the images promptly. And one could imagine various uh, possible regimes, but I can't see any justification for the uh, broad immunity that they currently enjoy. Mark, do you agree with Eric that 230 should be completely repealed? And again, I wonder about the, the free well, speech argument on the other side. You know, it's a tough call um, because I think there is certainly something to be said for the for the nature of Internet communication being, you know, robust and wide open. Um, and that was very much the intent of, of the court's uh, uh, opinion in 19. Uh, 96. Uh, but I remember also a cautionary concurrence by, by Justice O'Connor, uh, who recognized, I think, that without some type of liability in place, it would become a bit of a jungle out there. And in fact, of course, that's uh, what we see. Um, so I think some change in the statutory standard. I don't know if I would repeal it entirely. There are lots of different types of notice standards. We can imagine, you know, inquiry notice or if, if the company is placed on notice that some information has been improperly posted, then maybe it has an obligation to, to review the information similar to the copyright uh, notice and takedown provision. Um, but I think we probably do agree, Eric and I, uh, almost certainly that the current protection is simply too broad. Um, and there is something a little bit odd, not only in the breadth of the protection, but also that the companies themselves exercise editorial control. And this is the problem that I've always had about 230. In other words, if you're a pure common carrier, let's say you're a telephone company, for example, and you have no say over what it is people might say to one another through a communications network, I think it would be a grave mistake to put telephone companies in the position of policing their communication networks for unlawful conduct. Um, we wouldn't uh, want that to take place. But at the same time, the telephone companies have expressed very little interest in actually looking at the content of communications. But it's different for the Internet companies because they're constantly editing, framing, formatting, prioritizing, and ranking the information that they make available online. So to simultaneously say that they have the pen for editorial purposes, but not the responsibility for some of the consequences of what they post, I think is, is a difficult position for them to maintain. Eric, Mark is right that the Internet companies do make important editorial decisions all the time. In recent weeks, uh, different companies have made different decisions about whether to post the highly disturbing uh, videos of the beheading of American journalists. Uh, I think uh, the New York Times decided to, to run the pictures and uh, uh, Facebook uh, and, and Google, uh, which uh, prohibit um, 
hate speech made more nuanced decisions. Uh, do, you, um, do you think that uh, the Internet companies have too much power to administer their own standards, which are not, after all, First Amendment standards? And if so, how should the law be changed to restrict them? Yes, I think they have too much power. And, and let, let me um, uh, also say something related to what Mark said before. You know, I, I think the real issue here is how 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 easy it is or cost-effective it is or possible it is for a technology company to um, regulate uh, the behavior of people who use it. So I think the real problem with telling the telephone companies to you know, regulate the telephone systems so that people can't use uh, phone calls for criminal behavior is that, you know, that would effectively be, be impossible. Um, and, but it's, that's not true with um, internet communications where uh, everything is put in text, the text can be searched, uh, and these companies make a huge amount of money, uh, at least so far, and can, and can easily afford uh, adding people to screen images or to you know double check uh, algorithms, and so then we just have to ask ourselves, well, you know, how valuable is this speech that's that's being uh, circulated? And in the case of you know celebrity photographs, uh, the value is essentially zero, at least if you're talking about the values of political debate. You know, obviously people want to see those images and are willing to pay for them. And we have a, a market, you know, where so if an actress does want to make money off uh, images of herself, she she can do it at least as long as her her privacy is protected. Um, but now the beheading videos is a lot more complicated because you can imagine in, in a kind of perverse way that the ability to see that video does uh, contribute to public discourse um, because it enables people to understand and realize just how uh, brutal this organization is. But it, it's kind of complicated because this video is obviously also being used by this organization for propaganda purposes. They clearly think that they benefit from showing the world this video. Maybe it, it helps them recruit people who will then go and kill more people. I think this is an extremely difficult judgment to make. And I don't think it's a judgment that one would expect the um, these these technology companies and news organizations to be in the best position to make. Uh, they're they're weighing um, the basically their reputation and their ability to make money by either giving information to people that they want or offending uh, people who might stop using their service that doesn't align with uh, the public interest. So I think in the case of the beheading video, which is connected to um, uh, foreign policy and war. Uh, I'd like to see the government uh, have more power to uh, regulate what these companies do. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that you know censorship or something that extreme is justified in, in current conditions, but I, I do think that it's not the sort of thing that we should just think uh, the market should uh, determine on its own without any kind of input from the uh, U.S. government. Mark, I think I may be the most uh, First Amendment uh, uh, zealot uh, on the call of the, of the three of us, but from my point of view, the uh, the Internet companies are doing a pretty good job in, in resisting calls to remove a lot of offensive material and essentially enforcing something close to the American uh, 
First Amendment uh, tradition. Uh, am I wrong? Well, I'm sympathetic to your position, Jeff. And to be clear, you know, Epic has been aligned in many of the First Amendment defenses uh, regarding Internet regulation. Uh, it's not, of course, just about the Internet companies. It's also about the user's ability to express um, unpopular views, to dissent, uh, in many instances to hold their actual uh, to conceal their actual identity because we think anonymity is an important part of, of the First Amendment. Um, but I think there is an increasing sense that there is just too much power that's left to the companies themselves to create, in effect, an extrajudicial standard uh, that works for them. And I continue to be troubled, and I guess this is also reflected in some of Eric's comments, knowing the technological capabilities of the companies, not only for the purpose of, of editing and presenting information online, but also for you know, reaching deep into the activities of their users, knowing their interests, generating advertising uh, based on their search histories, uh, for example, to simultaneously have that uh, enormous uh, capability and to say at the same time, well, we're just unable to meaningfully exclude um, speech or materials that, that you know, possibly should be removed. So um, I, I think w we need to move toward a, a judicial standard um, that the companies would be expected to follow. And of course, the beheading uh, uh, videos are particularly difficult. Uh, but we are, in some respects, with that material in a realm of privacy where we understand that there's really no um, you know, better speech uh, that solves the problem of bad speech. And if we're promoting the First Amendment in part because we have a view of trying to uh, enable uh, greater democratic discourse, um, then it's not clear to me uh, what value those images actually uh, uh, serve in that process. Um, Eric, what is the difference between celebrities and private figures when it comes to precedents about the right of privacy and the right of publicity? And uh, is the status of the celebrities and their nude photos different from the status of the journalists when it comes to removing uh, pictures? And, and tell us more broadly, if the nude pictures hadn't been hacked but were t uh, taken as voluntary selfies, as they're called, and, and distributed and then went viral, would that change the legal situation? Yes, that would. Ironically, you know, if if the if the uh, actress or model takes a picture of herself, she has a copyright in it, and then um, she would have more she would have more uh, power to get the um, image taken down because of the copyright and uh, to obtain damages against people who uh, who uh, who disseminate the image, which is kind of crazy because from a privacy perspective, it shouldn't make any difference whether the picture was taken by her or by, you know, a friend or, you know, or a, a boyfriend or, you know, suppose she's doing modeling or something like that. So um, there's a certain craziness t uh, to that. Um, the other thing you asked about was public versus private. Uh, generally speaking, uh, there are ironies here as well. Public figures have less privacy than ordinary individuals do. But um, they also have, you know, more resources and legal talent and so forth that they can use to challenge um, people who disseminate their their images. So, you know, in the end, uh, it, it, you know, it's probably better to be a, a wealthy, at least a wealthy celebrity. I, I guess the people who are in the worst shape 
are private citizens who are, through no fault of their own, thrown into a public situation. And um, now, uh, what to think about it? You know, I'm, I'm, I am a, I, I guess, like a lot of people, I'm a bit more sympathetic to private individuals than celebrities. You know, I think celebrities make a kind of Faustian bargain, and in return for their fame and fortune, uh, they they know that a lot of people are going to have an interest in them. And I, you know, I don't think that's I- ideal, but I, I think that's one of the consequences of being a celebrity. So I'm I'm a little more worried about the absence of legal protection for uh, ordinary people. Uh, many people have been talking about revenge porn recently. You, you mentioned it, uh, Jeff. Uh, these are you know ordinary people um, whose uh, images or videos are then you know put on the internet, usually by unhappy ex-boyfriends. Uh, it's very hard to, for me to see, you know, any value in that. That's, that's just a way of harming these people. They have very little uh, legal recourse. And, and I think, you know, even people who are very strong advocates of the First Amendment should see that at least this is an area in which greater regulation would be justified. Um, Mark, uh, uh, tell us about uh, revenge porn for private uh, figures. Uh, sites like Reddit had... Uh, special sections set up for um, displaying them and then sort of re- rename them. And and then uh, t- tell us about the copyright issue that uh, Eric raised. As he said, um, if you take a picture of yourself, a selfie, you arguably own copyright in it. But here, um, some of the intermediaries were demanding that the celebrities prove that they took the pictures themselves and that the pictures hadn't been taken by boyfriends. So is this crazy, as Eric suggests, or not? Right. Well, coming back uh, first to the revenge porn issue, I think one factor that clearly distinguishes uh, that category of cases from from others is is the intent to cause harm. Um, And I think when you're in a realm that people are using images directed uh, toward a particular person uh, with malicious intent, um, this is no longer, uh, uh, you know, traditional uh, pr- protected speech, particularly with regard to private figures. Um, certainly, you know, we have a great tradition in this country of a lot of satire and parody directed toward uh, people who run for public office and public officials, but I don't think we would generally tolerate that uh, for people who haven't sought any type of, of public scrutiny or public office. So the intent requirement or the, the presence of the, of the malicious intent with respect to revenge porn, I think, is a, is a key factor. Now, you know, how the copyright um, claims play out is interesting. I think, you know, Eric is correct to the extent that you have captured the, in, the image that it is your work. That, that provides the basis for the copyright claim, although it seems odd, of course, that if someone else takes your image, if they were to use it, for example, for a commercial purpose without your consent, then you'd probably run into the tort of, of appropriation or publicity. So there are scenarios under which you would have some uh, legal claims to the use of, of your image when captured by someone else, um, but that isn't necessarily what's happening here because it's, it's not clearly that type of, of commercial appropriation that the tort law contemplates. Uh, I also just want to put on the table, since we're talking about these, um, you know, recent disclosures, Apple has a bit of a problem, by the way, because it appears that the hackers were able to get access to the images from iCloud by a pretty rudimentary uh, brute force attack, simply a password guessing done multiple times against a person's account made it possible to figure out 
um, the password, and and you know it's pretty well known in the security world that if someone tries to guess a password more than three, four, or five times, it's likely an automated attack, and you should probably time out the user. Um, Apple didn't do that, and um, I, I think they're going to have um, probably some some difficulties going forward as well. Um, Eric, do uh, consumers have any legal recourse against the storage companies like uh, Apple? And, and more broadly, I want to ask you, how would the legal situation be different in Europe? Uh, we have debated on these podcasts the proposed European right to be forgotten, which would allow users to demand the deletion of data concerning them, including pictures uh, they posted themselves and those uh, po post posted by others. Uh, would Jennifer Lawrence be in a different legal situation? if she were based in France? Yeah, well, these are very complicated questions. Uh, j just a, a, a couple simple points. Um, I, I don't think Apple is going to be liable um, unless, you know, maybe there's a violation of, of something in their contract. You know, they're going to suffer you know, some reputational damage, but uh, you know, one reason for having strong legal uh, regulation is to make it clear to companies like Apple that if they don't put in adequate security procedures, they could pay a lot of money. I, I, I don't know whether she has some possible tort claim against uh, Apple. Mark might know more than I do. In the case of Europe, you know, I, you know, uh, so so uh, Jennifer Lawrence probably would not have much recourse, at least under the right to forgotten. An ordinary person would. So if an ordinary person, uh, 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 if an image was taken of an ordinary person and was put on the web, uh, that person would have a, a lot more um, uh, sort of ability to, to get it taken down, or at least to get it uh, removed from the search results of, of Google. And you know, if an image of you is on the web, but nobody can find it by doing a search, you know, it's it's going to be hard to to find that image. And for all practical purposes, you'll be protected. Mark, is that your understanding as well? That well, actually, celebrities would have less protection than ordinary people, and Jennifer Lawrence would be out of luck in France. Yeah, I think by the time we're at the right to be forgotten, we're pretty far, you know, at the edge of the spectrum in terms of privacy claims under EU law. I actually think it's a much clearer fundamental uh, right, both in, in French uh, law and as well in the emerging EU uh, constitution uh, post-Lisbon Treaty, um, that a person has the right to control the use of their image. And that would mean uh, both for a public person and a private person. It would mean both an image that they have created or an image that someone else has created. Uh, I think what we sometimes think of in the U.S. as a copyright claim is increasingly with respect to uh, personal data and personal images viewed as a fundamental human rights claim uh, in Europe. And, of course, the, the remarkable uh, fact there, which you and I have talked about in the past, Jeff, is it looks surprisingly like the Brandeis tort from more than a century ago, which, by the way, received its first... Uh, endorsement uh, from from a Georgia uh, state court, I think in in 1905, concerning the publication of a young girl's image on on, on an oatmeal box for advertising purposes without her consent. Um, that was a use of a private person's image, uh, um, you know, with, without their agreement. And um, I think that is now a well understood right under EU law, and I think it owes its origins to the uh, Brandeis article from more than a century ago.
Um, Eric, Mark said the magic word on the NCC podcast, which is Brandeis, uh, which, uh, and, and we always ask ourselves when discussing privacy and technology, WWBD, what would Brandeis do? Do you think that the Brandeis torts which sound like a delicious dessert, but actually have a sort of checkered history uh, throughout uh, American law because they're so hard to define. Do they need to be resurrected? And more broadly, is what Brandeis called the right to personality, the right to honor, the right to dignity, does that need to be resurrected and expanded in the Internet age? Well, you know, I'm certainly sympathetic uh, to that approach. But, you know, the, as we talked about earlier, the, the first, the, the first uh, step would simply be Either to get rid of Section 230, or you know, or limit it in some way, and then it would become possible for people to bring uh, these uh, common law torts against um, internet companies. Now, they may, those torts may not be adequate, um, and it may also be the case. Well, I think especially for ordinary people, uh, you know, if you you know, if your image is, let's say, suppose, let's take the, you know, like something like the revenge porn case, or just, it needn't be for malicious purposes. Let's just suppose that a, a nude picture of somebody somehow gets on the web. I, you know, that in a tort claim, you're going to have to show damages, and that may be impossible. Um, so you, you may be able to sue to get it taken down, but you wouldn't be able to obtain any damages. And then one way or the other, you're going to have to, you're going to have a lot of legal fees. And if you don't have damages, then you're not going to be able to pay your lawyer unless you're, you're wealthy. So, uh, I, I suspect, you know, these common law torts, which, which as you also mentioned, are not, are not really that well defined and are not really that strong, uh, would in an ideal world need to be supplemented uh by uh by regulation in order to provide real protection for people and, and i think there's a key point here and jeff i made exactly the same point to you when, when we talked about the right to be forgotten but i'm going to repeat it anyway which is that if you go back to the 1980s which i think all of us remember uh there was no internet and there <laughs> yeah and there was extraordinary robust uh public debate and um the internet has clearly made it uh, easier for people to exchange ideas, uh, and in that sense, it's 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 made our political debate, I guess, more vibrant. Uh, it's allowed uh, people who, in the past, had been shut out, ways uh, of expressing themselves, and you know that's a good thing. But it's also created a, a lot of uh, potential for harm, and. It, it's not necessarily the case that the 1980s were ideal, but we we can think of it as a kind of a baseline of a of a sort of a tolerable society where there was a lot of public debate and the risk of of being harmed in a devastating way through the dissemination of images of yourself was virtually zero. And now that uh, we have more debate, but we also have more uh, potential for harm, it seems to me that it's quite reasonable uh, to to think about regulation. And the opposite impulse in this country is always to say uh, it's an unambiguous good when it makes it when it's easier for people to communicate because then then we get you know more First Amendment values or you know our First Amendment values are more uh, vigorously uh, advanced. And I, I just don't think that's the right way to think about this problem. Mark Eric had the first word, and I'm going to give you the last one, and it's the important question. WW. BD, what would Brandeis do? Is, as, as we've discussed, uh, Brandeis was uh, torn between his privacy and free speech impulses, and the torts were not that practical to enforce because in the 20th century, no one could agree about what a, 
reasonable person would find highly offensive. Is there more likely to be agreement uh, in this uh, even more fractious age? And is it practical to reinforce the Brandeis torts in the age of the Internet? Well, I think Brandeis, um, you know, provided us with an understanding of the importance both about the protection of privacy, particularly in private life, as well as the need for robust uh, public debate in, in, you know, social life. And the idea that these are complementary interests more than their competing interests is a key insight. Um, nonetheless, we're still going to face some conflicts. And I think uh, if one thing has emerged from this discussion, um, it is that uh, privacy claims and privacy concerns are not going to go away uh, just because we have a technology and, and a legal framework that is today granting uh, such such broad and, and unrestricted uh, types of speech. Um, and I think we may need to make some adjustments, and I think that will help over the long term uh, sustain both privacy interests and free speech interests. On that optimistic note that there will still be a vigorous debate about privacy in the 21st century, we will end this characteristically illuminating uh, discussion uh, with thanks to both of you for contributing to it so well. Uh, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.